Well, hey, happy Father's Day to everyone. Uh, I am thankful for the men in our church who are passionate about living for, for God, growing in Him, serving Him. I saw many years ago uh, one of the great missteps of the modern church that they had made, that we had made, was a real lack of solid ministry and training of our men. I praise God for the women because they kept the church going, because they stayed faithful. We have successfully, by the grace of God, made a shift here at Disciples Church. Um, this is a church body where men can and will be ministered to and trained up if they're willing to lean in, if they're willing to die to self and grow with us. The Lord's given us a high call as men to lead the house, to lovingly, sacrificially lead our bride, our family, our children, those who follow us, Growing in the Lord and, and being equipped to lead our families is a most important priority as adopted sons of God. One of the big ways we fight our flesh and our selfishness and laziness is to joyfully submit ourselves to the authority of the Lord. We must understand that we are men under authority and only when we truly get this will we in turn lead our families to, and those who are being discipled by us. The passage we're going to study today in John 14 is perfect fit for Father's Day as Jesus will highlight the reality that his redeemed people will obey and submit to his commands. Fathers, husbands, men, this starts with us. May we lean on this morning word and be blessed and be challenged that we would not leave the way we came in. We left off last week with verse 13 and 14 of chapter 14. Turn with me to John 14. You'll see a little outline in your bulletin there. Uh, these were the last two verses of last week's sermon. I want to read them for a little bit of context into this week. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said to the disciples, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is pointing the disciples to the wonderful reality that even though he is about to leave them physically, he will be with them. And, we, and he will hear our prayers and he will answer. Praying and living in the name of Jesus is our way of living in the will of Jesus, in the power of Jesus. As the body of Christ, we are to faithfully walk in the will of God, the Father. And in this, He is glorified in the Son and, and us, the body of Christ. So, the question this morning, how do we stay in the center of the will of God? How do we remain faithful to our God? How do we live in the name of Jesus? And Jesus' answer here is we walk in obedience and joyful submission to His commandments. And so this is where Jesus goes next. Our first verse for today, and it's a big one. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's just take Jesus' words here at, at face value. This is a super simple, yet often, over, often ignored foundation of the Christian faith. 
the byproduct of true love for something, for God, is devotion to Him. If you truly love God, you will be devoted. And it's this way with anything. If not, then it's hypocrisy. To say you love something but then not be devoted to it is hypocritical. If I tell you I love baseball, but you never see me engaged in anything having to do with baseball, then do I really love it? Or do I have an idea that I love it? If you say you love your spouse, but then you live in a constant state of unfaithfulness in your marriage, in your marriage vows, do you really love your spouse? If you, if you say you love your job, but never show up to work, never you put in the very minimum when you're there, do you really love your job? It is simply not true love if it's not backed up with your life. It's just words. It's just an idea. You cannot love Jesus and then disregard the fact that he is God. If you love and know him and you understand that he's God, then you will rightly want to heed and listen to and embrace his commands, not reject, redefine, ignore. To love Jesus is to love his rule and authority in your life, which means you will keep his commands. Percy W. Hayward is a Bible scholar in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He was a Christian contemporary of A.W. Pink and J.C. Ryle. He spoke to this very well when he said, All sentimental talking and singing about love are vain, unless by grace we show a truthful obedience. There is more hypocrisy than we suppose. Love is practical, he says, or it is not love at all. Notice he says, unless by grace we show a truthful obedience. Hayward says, very importantly, unless by grace we must start there when we talk about obedience or all we end up with is religion. Understand, church, we do not earn the love of God. We cannot. It is only because of grace that we have his love. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ to think that we must perform or obey well enough to earn his love. By grace, we are given new life in Christ. Therefore, true love of God is at work in us. That love is empowered by this same grace and then shown in obedience to him. We are reconciled to God and therefore we obey. Why? Because we're a new creation. Because the old self and the old longings have died and the new self and the new longings are born. To try to obey and love God and his commands outside of regeneration is a mechanical, manual adjustment that will tire you, wear you out. You will not, you will not persist. You will wear out. You will quit. You will walk away. It is the weighty shoulders of religion. The gospel must lead. Transformation of heart must be first. 
We do not obey so that we can be accepted by God. That is not the gospel, but religion and a hurdle that you will never overcome. We obey because we are redeemed and given new life in Christ, a new heart for God. The evidence of our new birth in Christ and true love for God is our obedience. Our obedience is the evidence of that change. The great late Baptist pastor and preacher Charles Spurgeon had a great illustration that I heard. I want to share it with you to help us understand this. If you put out an amazing steak dinner by the top chef in the region, I don't mean all the dads who think they're good barbecuers and then we burn it all the time. I mean, I mean we're talking the top guys, right? Talking the top guys. There's a reason why Gordon Ramsay steak costs 50 bucks because it literally just melts in your mouth when you put it in there okay so there's something to that top chef amazing steak the prime prime thing and next to it you put a bucket of slop and then you release a hungry pig to go eat every time that pig is going to pass on a refined steak dinner look at that as nonsense and dive into the bucket of slop Why? Because it's a pig. Because the nature of a pig wants the slop. It's good to the pig. That other thing looks weird. Not good. Not appetizing. Now, if the pig is transformed supernaturally into a human man, then the very thing that he once loved, he now hates. And he would not want to eat the slop anymore. Instead, he pulls his head out of the bucket of slop, throws up everything he can because it's so nasty, but recognize that's the thing he once longed for and considers now atrocious. He is embarrassed that he could ever stoop so low and is absolutely thankful for a new nature to long for what he now knows is the better thing. The person who is truly converted is supernaturally changed by the grace of God, the power of God. And the result of that change is new desires shifting from sin-loving, self-seeking, righteous-hating pig slop to sin-hating, God-honoring, righteous-loving steak dinner. Let me be clear. This transformation and regeneration does not mean perfection. Not this side of glorification. But we will often forget that we're no longer a pig. And we will put our head back in the bucket of slop. But but if the nature has been transformed by the regeneration of God, we will realize what we're doing, and we will stop and vomit it up and change our course. This is something the pig would never do before that transformation. If we're in a season where we have found our head and shoulders buried in the bucket, it also might take a brother or sister in Christ, or a sermon, or a scripture, or simply the conviction of the work of the Holy Spirit to wake us up from our stupor And see what we're doing so that we will repent. We will turn from the slop 
and head back to the stake. From the sin, back to Christ. Why? Because you're not a pig anymore. Humans do not love pig's flop once they know the goodness of the chef's dinner. Will we find ourselves in it on occasion? Yes. Maybe even for a season? Yes. But the truly converted will repent, which means turn back to the Lord and continue their course of honoring God. That's the sign of true conversion. When God has regenerated your heart, your longings change and increase over time in sanctification. Your desires to please the Lord are more and more. You want Him to rule over you. You want His authority over you. His commands are not a burden to you. Increasingly. Look with me at John's first letter, chapter 5. He says in 1 John 5, 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. See it. See those two together. And His commandments are not burdensome. Christian, you cannot love God and despise His commands. His commands are not burdensome to the true believer. You want His command. You want his authority in your life. Do you know when his commands become burdensome in our lives? When we truly, in any given moment, are more interested in serving our will rather than his. When we, in sin, set him aside, don't look at him with awe and the beauty of the gospel he's provided us, when we get our affections focused on ourselves, on creation more than the Creator, then we begin to despise His commands as burdensome. But when we are truly regenerate and rightly focused on treasuring Jesus as the greatest thing in our lives, as sufficient, as praiseworthy, we will long to keep His commands and we will not despise them. And if you find yourselves in a season where you're struggling, if you're truly regenerate, you will turn from it. You will not remain in a course of disobedience. Church, it is sin that causes us to reject a faithful submission to Jesus' commandments. A true Christian, now I know in the South why the pastors have towels to wipe themselves down. All right? That's all right. I don't, I'm good. I just get it now. Okay. Um, a true Christian may backslide for a moment or a short season, but in the end, the true Christian will joyfully submit to God. Why? Because his heart has been changed. The good tree, as Scripture says, cannot produce a lasting crop of bad fruit. If it does, it proves to not be a good tree at all, but an imposter. An unconverted tree may say they love Jesus, but their fruit and lack of faithful obedience says otherwise. Church, this is not a one-time emphasis of Jesus or the apostles in their later writings, but we see this time and time again in the Scriptures. Other places in John's later letters, 1 John 2, 4-5, whoever says, I know him, 
but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Why is this so important, church? Because there are so many modern day people who will proclaim a love for Jesus or a love for God, but have no evidence of a true, obedient life to him, submission to him. And in the modern church culture, we have just said, oh, that's okay. You say you love Jesus, good enough. That's not what the scriptures call for. They call for an evidence of obedience. 1 John 3, 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Same package we see in John 14, 14 and 15. Pray in my name. I will give you what you ask. If you love me, you will heed my commandments. The same packaging as we see in 1 John 3, 22. John 14, 21. Look at the next verse we're going to cover today. He says it again in this same passage. I know I'm skipping some verses. We're going to get back to them next week. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The evidence of a true believer who loves Jesus as Lord of their life is the one whom has and keeps the commandments of God. Listen to this quote. How this verse rebukes an ever-increasing antinomianism. I'll define that in a moment. An ever-increasing antinomianism of our day. Basically, people who are against the law. In some circles, one cannot use the word commandments without being frowned upon as a legalist. Multitudes are now being taught that the law is an enemy of grace and that the God of Sinai is a stern and forbidding deity laying upon his creatures a yoke of grievous to be born. Terrible travesty of this truth it is. The one who wrote upon the, tap, the, the tables of stone is none other than the one who died on Calvary's cross. He who says, if ye love me, keep my commandments, also said at Sinai, he would show mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That quote was written a hundred years ago, roughly, by A.W. Pink. But it, you take out all the old English terminology there, and you put that in modern-day language, you could make that same quote apply for today. This shows us just how potent sin is. Sin in mankind that gives us the audacity to want to rewrite what the Lord has made clear. Repackage and reprioritize what the Lord has made clear. Church, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by our obedient works or will. Hear me clearly, that's salvation. This is true. But it does not mean that the moral universal commandments of God and the New Testament positive laws of, of God are not to be obeyed for the saved. The good news is that we now have the power and the desire to obey these commandments. In Christ alone, it is possible to do this. Now, Pink mentioned that theological term, antinomianism. Let's talk about that for a moment. In the Greek, it's two words combined together. Anti, meaning against, 
Nomos meaning law. Against the law. It's a point of view that believes that God does not have standing commands or that commands from God exist or that it's important that Christians obey them. Grace alone for life is what is spoken of. And there's a nuance here that we have to make sure we get. The result of of regeneration means the sovereign God gives us a new heart and new desires that the tree of our life will produce a crop of God-honoring fruit. That doesn't mean that the Christian doesn't have days or seasons of struggle and sin. Hear me, a true Christian will struggle with sin. A true Christian will at times struggle with grievous sin. A true Christian can languish in immaturity. But the difference is they will not stay there. There will be real repentance, not ongoing dishonoring fruit. They will not reject the commands of God. They will have a real trajectory of growth. Real struggle among believers and even backsliding is why, hear me, the church does discipline. It is the loving thing to do. As a father, it is loving for you to discipline your child. It is not loving to not discipline them. Same in the church. We're commanded by God to discipline and bring discipline when sinful backsliding happens for their good, for the church's good. To blatantly deny God's authoritative word and go about our own way unrepentantly is not in step with the gospel, is not being aligned with Christ. So God instructs discipline and eventually disfellowship if a person is claiming Jesus but rejecting Christian accountability or obedience to God's commands. If they are truly saved and converted by the Spirit, even in disfellowship, they will eventually come to their senses, repent, and return. If they don't, they prove to have never been one of us, is what Paul will say later. So we must be oh so aware of how antinomian thinking threatens Jesus' authoritative teaching here. Antinomianism plays out in church circles often like this. Let me bring you an example. Someone who is known as a professing Christian is seen or caught in sin. Another faithful Christian lovingly comes alongside them, faithfully goes to them, calls them out, points it out, calls them to repent and turn to obey God and his good commandments. And what someone will say is, whoa, why are you getting involved in that? What about grace, brother? Where's your grace? You have no place to judge them. Again, that's antinomian thinking. That's modern day Christianity that is ignoring the instructions of Scripture. It's rooted in a misapplied antinomian process that's infected the modern church. We are saved by grace alone, but the evidence of the saved is a desire to do God's commands. So it is loving when you help me point out, hey brother, I love you. Your head's in the bucket of slop. Oh, Thank you for loving me enough to point that out. I will turn from the sloth and return to honoring my Lord. 
If I say, forget you, get away, go back to diving in, eventually, after so many efforts of that, the scriptures say we are to disfellowship, still hoping that the removal from the body then causes that brother to finally wake up one day and go, I'm eating slop, but I love my king, and, and my brothers call me, oh, my bad. And they return, and we celebrate that, and praise God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is not loving to disregard God's commands and head and, and not heed his authority or the authority of Scripture. It is not loving to stand by and watch a professing Christian continue in sin in the name of grace. It is common today, thank you, brother. It's even cold. I love you, dude. It is common today for Christians who truly desire to be obedient to the word of God, to be accused of legalism. Some general word thrown out there. Conviction to honor and obey God's word will cause some people to define you as a bigot, as an intolerant person, as self-righteous, as a hater, as a homophobe, lots of words. Those heedings to the commands of Scripture Society, parts of society want to package us in these ways, not liking it. The motive is generally the same, to slander that person so that people will stop listening to them. Okay? This is wonderful. (laughs) But what is really happening here is the Christian is being accused of simply doing what honors God, is submitting to his word. He wants to eat the steak dinner, not because he's trying to keep the rules, but because it's so much better. Because he loves God. Because he's not a pig anymore. He he doesn't want to eat out of the slop bucket. The commands and the ways of God are not foreign or burdensome. They are good. They're better. They're to be desired, to be followed. However, the accuser of one who holds such a conviction can't understand why anyone would want to eat the steak dinner or follow the commands of God. Those things are atrocious. From a societal lost worldview, those positions are not loving, are bad, are all the ways they want to package that. Why is this? Because the accuser is still a pig or a very misled, converted person unto bad theology. Jesus cuts right to it. No room for misunderstanding. Look at what he says next. John 14, 22-24. Judas, now to be clear, not Judas Iscariot, not the betrayer, okay? Just like there's more than one Scott in the room, there was more than one Judas around at that day, okay? So, not Judas Iscariot, another Judas said to him, Lord, how is this that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The proof of union with Christ and salvation in God and regeneration by the Holy Spirit is a true love of God 
Not just words or songs, but a lifestyle, a longing to honor and obey God. Church, we must make war with modern-day antinomian practice that is anti-gospel and in complete opposition to the teachings of Jesus and his holy word. We must not play light with sin and be guilty of disregarding the authority of God's word in our lives. Just listen. Listen to the instruction of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the church, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See the analogy that that Spurgeon used here, played out in the words of Scripture. Clarify. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He lives for God's glory. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your members, your body, your mind, your eyes, your priorities of your day, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I love that passage. We need that word. 
I want you to see, church, our freedom from sin, our salvation in Jesus, means we're not free to do whatever we want, even if it means putting our members or our minds to sin. It means we are free from slavery to sin to then joyfully submit to and honor God. It is our joy to be under his authority. It is our sin that wants us to not be accountable to God in his word or our leaders or anyone else. We want to rule and reign in our sin. This is the very thinking that got our federal head, Adam and Eve, into this mess. Thinking, I want to decide. I want to rule. I want to know. No, in Christ, we who are truly saved, truly love God, we do this not just with our words, not just with our Sunday singing, but with our lives. We want to be ruled, want to submit to God's will and word and wisdom. It is better. It is good news. And we prove that we are truly his and that we truly love him in these things. We do not play light with our lifestyle or our words or our actions because they tell a story about who we truly are and who God truly is. So let me, let me touch on a couple areas where this muddies up in modern day happenings. When God says, do not have any other gods before me, we do not justify and overcling to any good thing that he's created, but we cling to God above all else. That means we're constantly making war with the good things in our lives to not be our primary thing, our family, our marriage, our children, our job, our hobby, our money, our looks, our car, whatever else. When God says, do not murder, then we do not condone, justify, advocate for abortion of babies in the womb who God has ordained unto life by his sovereign will no matter the circumstances. It is the Lord who gives life and who takes it away. It is not us who are to do that. When God says marriage is for a man and a woman and that it is sinful to engage in sexual activity with anyone who is not your spouse under these terms, we do not redefine marriage then and call it good. We do not engage in extramarital intimacy and call it good or justify the practice of homosexuality and call it good because of emotional love or because we perceive a horizontal good that may be coming from it, we heed to the good and perfect will of God who is over all these things. We don't redefine that stuff or advocate for it. We love our brothers and sisters enough to call them to the good and perfect word of God and to the life that we find in Christ, the freedom that comes in him. When God says, do not lie, we, we then, when faced with being confronted with something that's dishonest, we, we confess our sin. We are honest. And we receive the consequences that come instead of try to cover it up and lie to keep face and live falsely. Church, true people of God love God. We love obeying his good and perfect commandments. We do not rewrite them. We do not make adjustments to them. We joyfully submit to him. He is our life. He is our God. He is our authority. And it is sweet to be his. 
Some antinomian thinkers will point to Jesus' words in the great commandment and say, see, all we need is love. Let's read that verse real quick and then we'll break it down. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Two things here. So we're going to be careful not to take these things out of context. First, remember, this is Jesus' synopsis of the Ten Commandments. He's not doing away with the Ten Commandments. This is a synopsis of the Ten Commandments. He's affirming, synopsizing the moral law, not disregarding it. Number two, how does one love God with all their heart, soul, and mind and love their neighbor? Well, there's many ways you and I could come up with how we would define that. But probably the best way to define it is to look at what Jesus says. And what does Jesus say about how we're to love God? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there is no, we don't need the commands of God. We don't need his good will for us. We just walk in love. Love. Love is love, true love is God, but we don't redefine it, repackage it. But we're being sold this all the time. Nah, I won't go there. All right. I'm going to mention a recent movie that its climactic moment says, Believe in love. You want to throw up. All right. Do, do, do you realize that a non-believing world wants to make a false god of love? To believe in love is not to believe in God. No, the, the statement of all statements is to believe in God, who is love. Not remove God and call love something, and we put our hat on that. See the lostness of that. See a world that is dead in sin, trying to find their way, define that that way. We must see these truths for what they are. Church, this is Jesus' call in our lives as blood-bought Christians. Remember the Great Commission. Make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. May it be our joy to be under his authority, to trust his commandments, that they are good, and want to follow them despite how hard it may be at times, how unpopular it may be at times in this fallen world. Before we finish today, let me remind you, as we've often taught, obedience to Jesus does not come from within yourself by something you do naturally to muster it up. I said this at the opening, let me try to say it a different way today. Obedience is not any kind of basis for salvation. That would be a work that we do. It is not done by mustering up enough self-will to just obey. That's not the fruit of real salvation. That is begrudging service and not joyful desire to serve God. God does the work of salvation and sanctification in us. His grace saves us. The same grace grows us and causes us to obey him. Pastor Matt said this the other day in one of our midweek lessons when he said, when a saved person obeys God, 
It is because God, by his will, in his sovereignty, causes this person to genuinely will to obey to glorify him. In these instances, God makes our hearts desire to do what he commands us in Scripture. We see this in Philippians chapter 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works his will in us so that we will work for his glory. His sovereignty causes our will to obey him. This verse is huge. So what is, what is then the action step for us? Church, it is not leave here and muster up your bootstraps to be better obedient Christians. It's leave here to hold fast in a greater way to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the source of your obedience. Don't put your eyes on yourself. Put your eyes on Jesus. Look to him to redeem you. Look to his life modeled for you. Look to his word to instruct you to command you. Looking inward for obedience will get you nowhere. Look to God. Love His commands. Pray to Him. Remember the gospel motivation for these things. Jesus is worthy of our belief, our worship, our obedience. So you must do business with us today. Do you believe in Him? Do you worship Him? Do you submit to him? Are you on the, or are you on the throne of your own life and your own house? I want to show you one other facet of this, because I think especially sometimes as men we can struggle with this. Jesus is not just a king on a throne. He left his throne in heaven to come in flesh to serve and to save. If he were just a king on a throne then you might submit to him solely because you have to. Begrudgingly, lifelessly. Some of you might even be here at church today because you have to be. You don't want to be. It is not your first priority or your greatest joy to worship your king on your day. The world's telling you that today is all about you. Some of you resent that you're having to appease your family to be here today. I pray God gives you a new view of these things with a genuine revelation to see and savor Him. That you would not see Him just as a king on a throne or an authority you have to submit to because in that you're missing the beauty of the gospel, the joy that it is to be His. For some of you, if you're honest, Jesus, you look to Jesus and what you see, or you look to the Word and what you see is a nagging boss. And you realize, if you're honest, I don't have a relationship with Him. Your love for Him is not authentic. It's instructed. It's, it's out of some kind of religious obligation. The face you put on is to try to keep him happy with you. But if all you see in Jesus is religion, is these things I've just described, orders coming down from the boss that you must submit to in order to get paid at the end of the day, then you're missing the gospel. 
Jesus is not just a king on a throne. He is surely the king on the throne. But he's a king who got off that throne to get low. To fulfill the triune God's plan to die on a cross for an undeserving people. A king who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so I ask you today to do real business. Who is Jesus to you? If he's the means to another end, then I don't think you truly love Jesus. You love only what he gets you. But if Jesus is the Lord of your life, and it is the joy of your life that he's the Lord of your life, the ultimate joy and identity, then Jesus is not just a king, he's your king. And if that's the case, now here's where it all comes together. If that's the case, then you don't come to him with your own ideas or your own priorities of what should transpire. You don't use modern day rhetoric or thinking to negotiate or to debate. Instead, you lay down your agenda and will and life at the feet of the king and you joyfully say, command me. I'm yours. If Jesus is the joy of your heart, the greatest affection of your life, you will do what Jesus is saying today to his disciples. You will obey and keep his commandments. Or as he says elsewhere, you will obey and keep his word. If he is the one who defines your value and gives you identity, if he's the one who you live for and worship, Jesus is not just a king on a throne. He's your king, and you trust him with everything, and you obey him in all of your life. Man, understand this today. A true man of God is a man who has died to self to live to Christ. A man whose prideful neck has been broken whose worldly affections have been shattered, whose stony heart has been crushed, whose life is now joyfully mastered by Jesus. He joins Paul to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen? I pray this is the kind of man we are becoming at Disciples Church. Be sure to come to midweek this week. We are going to be blessed with a beautiful God-ordained follow-up in our next first set of verses in Philippians. Are you thinking this the whole time this morning? Steve's going to be teaching in the next set of Philippians that will bring another layer of other part of the Word to help us flesh some of this out, uh, not only in his lesson, but in our study time around the table. It would be great. If you don't have a good church home, you're visiting here with us today, we would love to have you join us. There are a few summer days where we are going to have church in the south, but for a long time to come, we're going to have a nice new modern facility, so endure this moment with us. We'd love to walk with you. Stand with me. I want to pray over you. We're going to sing to Jesus and go jump in River Lake.
Father God in heaven above, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I really pray that that is the true prayer of our hearts. Lord, I want your will, not mine. Your will be done. Lord, help me out of my sinful reasoning, my sinful worldview, to see and savor what you, a good and perfect God, has ordained is good and right and God-honoring and loving. I thank you for the work you're doing in us. I thank you for the work you're doing despite us. Lord, there's so many areas of our lives that we didn't want to change. I don't want to change that. I like the way I do that. I like the way I think about that. We didn't want to change. And you worked in us by your power despite us. Praise God for that. Because you took us to a place that in our sin we would have never come. And you brought healing and you brought correction and you and you brought life. And now we're getting to bless others. May it not just be about us, but, but to recognize that there's many who are watching us, who are in our wake. Think of that old video that we showed years ago. Daddy, I'm watching you. Young or old, fathers with grown kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, they're still watching. Let us not stop. Let us not slow down. If we have found ourselves in the bucket lately, Lord God, let us be genuine and repent and confess. To fall on our sword, to have our prideful neck broken, that we would submit, that we would follow, that we would trust God and see what you will do. And see what you will do. Lord, let us sing these words with a genuine heart that really does business. If this is true, if you truly did pay it all by your blood, what am I doing with that? And if not, then what's the point of any of it? God, I love you. I thank you for the work you're doing. I thank you for your patience with me and all the ways I've had to grow and all the moments I've had to have a brother help me see Brother, you're longing for the slot. Return to the sweetness, the goodness of Jesus. Heed our praise, not just with our words, but with our lives. Hear our love, not just with our words, not just with our promises, but with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.